WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. It's Ken Meyer. Welcome once again to City Talk. If you're a fan of sports, you'll certainly remember this gentleman, very articulate, very funny, and very personable, Bob Lobel. He's not the gentleman you're describing to me, <laughs> but hi. Bob, it's, it's seriously, it's great to have you here um, and to sit down for a while and reminisce about. Well, thanks. It's great to be here and be with you again since we spent so much time in, in similar studios <laughs> way back when. But Yeah, it was way back when. That's the scary part. Tell me about growing up in Apple Creek, Ohio, and how you got interested in sports. With me, it was my dad, and I'm curious about how it happened to you. Well, I suppose that that would be a very similar situation, that my father was a big uh, New York baseball giant fan, and um, the pro football leagues were not what they are today, of course, so it was pretty much all baseball uh, and a New York Giant fan. The first game I ever went to was in the polo grounds with uh-huh. the Giants. And, you know, I, m- I remember so many of those players. And, you know, that particular game, there's just flashes of memory. Uh, I can remember going over to the right field wall in the polo grounds, which was a very close, steep wall. Not like the big green monster at Fenway Park, but... It had a personality all its own. One of them was that it was very close before it quickly jutted out. As a matter of fact, it was a guy that hit a home run in the World Series, Dusty Rhodes. Oh, yeah. And a sports writer said, if you could hit a home run there, you could drop a dime in a payphone from 35 feet. (laughs) So that was kind of described that. So I went out there during batting practice, and Warren Spahn, they were playing the Braves that day, and Warren Spahn was out there, and I was horrified that these kids, many were, were just a little older than I was. I was like six or seven or something like that. But they were giving him so much grief and trouble. I couldn't believe they were actually talking to players like that. And uh, the little did I know that that was, that was the culture of being a, uh, a sports fan, that you had to badmouth the enemy. But I never <laughs> thought I'd hear it in person. Anyways, having said that, yeah, I think my father was a big uh, influence, but I also think uh, being an only child and you know looking for relationships and friendships uh, took place in in doing sports, whether it was high school football, basketball, or baseball. But that's all I had in Apple Creek, Ohio. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. we had four sports: football, basketball, baseball, and track. And uh, those of us that most of us participated in all four of them. But we didn't have soccer, we didn't have lacrosse, we didn't have volleyball, we didn't have swimming, we didn't have tennis, we didn't have a lot of things that a lot of these schools offer today. It was strictly the meat and potatoes in Ohio, football and basketball, and baseball and track, period. And how did you get into, what What made you decide you wanted to get into radio as a career? I don't, you know, it's another mystery of mine that uh, I never have figured out, but <laughs> when I went, I went to the University of Vermont for a master's degree after going to Kent State. I tried out for the baseball team at Kent State and got cut. 
I tried out for the basketball team at Kent State and got cut. <laughs> so I guess I knew my if I was going to go to games, I would be watching instead of playing. So at any rate, uh, sports always had a place in my heart. Uh, for some reason. Anyway, I like the competition and and the drama and the, the fans' reactions, et cetera, et cetera. However, when I got out of Kent State, uh, I went to the University of Vermont to get a master's degree in education because I thought I wanted to be a guidance counselor and a college administrator. And after I got out of UVM and a master's degree, uh, I took a job as the director of student activities at, at UVM. And during that uh, time, it was a uh, college radio station. I had a chance to go do their basketball games as a color analyst on uh, the UVM station for their basketball team. And then a job opened up in Burlington at Channel 22, which was um, WVNY at the time. It was most people couldn't get Channel 22 like they couldn't get Channel 38 because UHF was a different deal. You know, it was major league or major broadcasting networks and UHF was just, a, you had to have a special antenna and blah, 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 blah. But that was where it started at Channel 22. And the news director, the newsman ran the camera for me and I turned around and ran the camera for him. So that's the kind of way it started, and it was all film. It wasn't tape. Mm -hmm. But what came with that job was a car and a camera, and I'd have to go out and shoot my own stories on videotape, not on videotape, on film, and then come back and either edit it myself or have someone edit it because I, you know, I had no handyman skills at all. I had always had to have somebody edit it. So anyway, that's that's kind of the way it started, and uh, I never really wanted to get out and do anything else. There was a there was a time, Ken, you know, it's, sometimes you come to points in your life where there's you take a left turn or a right turn, and uh, whatever happens after that turn depends on that turn. And it was one week where my best friend in Manchester, New Hampshire, I was working at the radio station down there by then, and doing all kinds of play-by-play -play and all kinds of sports casts and sports talk show and pretty much had maxed out everything, including selling advertising. And he asked, he offered me a job as the director, as sales manager for his automobile dealership. And uh, that same week, I got an offer from WBZ Radio from Pat Randall, who was the news, the sports director of BZ Radio. And you know Pat. I knew Pat very well. And um, as a matter of fact, the late Pat Randall, yeah, as a matter sad. of fact. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, she uh, I, I came down and I, I got the job of doing afternoon sports with, uh, well, Carl D'Souza was in the morning and was Maynard and, Bill and Bruce Bradley in the afternoon. Ah, good old Bruce. Yeah, and then did that for a couple years, and then on and on. So anyway... That's just, it, it's kind of evolved, Ken. It just evolved much less. I had very little say in what evolved. I just said yes to whatever came up. Now, you worked at, in New Hampshire. The radio station was WGIR. Yes, it was. correct? Yes. Tell me about the boo of the week. You know, it's not my idea, unfortunately. I wish I had many original <laughs> ideas, but that idea began with... Uh, when I was, I lived in Washington D.C. for a year, working for a national college fraternity, 
between when I decided I, I had no career in broadcasting. Uh, and there was a sportscaster down there, Warner Wolf. Ah, yeah, and I know that name. Warner was in Washington and then later went to New York. But he had a shtick and he had a boo of the week. And so it was his idea. So I stole it. I mean, I used it as a boo of the week. And t it, t tell us about it and how it worked. Well, it was just, it was a very personal thing. You know, there's something that would come up and I would, you know, give them some, you know, some like Roseanne Barr would win the boo of the week. Yeah. So many people would be eligible, but it certainly had to be in somebody in, somebody in sports. Uh, so clearly... I mean, that was just like a, a little gimmick. I mean, I always felt like it ought to be entertaining. Sports ought to be fun, ought to be entertaining, it ought to make people uh, smile, at least for the most part. And that's kind of how that... And I've always been a fan of props, like Panic Button. And uh, my favorite prop of all time is uh, a little-known thing... I had this the scene scene director at Channel Four. His name was Mike Nozell. I had him make me a fake Boston Garden uh, steel girder. It was made out of plywood, so it was very light, but it looked like a steel girder. And I simply said that if you're going to tonight's Bruins game because they're playing so poorly, you may want to take this along so you can sit behind it and not see the game. It was you know it was like a joke. It was like supposed to be. Uh, and it, it worked for me and it worked for Mike Nozell, but I never used it that much. Mm -hmm. But it had its purpose. All, all those props had their purpose. I seem to remember, and I may be wrong, but your first week at WBZ Radio, Johnny Most, the voice of the Celtics, right. got laryngitis. Yes, he did. And so one week after you started at BZ Radio, you wound up, if I'm right, doing a Detroit Pistons-Boston Celtics game. You're right. Your first weekend at WBZ. You're right. It was in Cobo Hall. It was when they played there. They didn't play there anymore, of course. Yeah. Cobo Hall, and uh, I think John Havlicek had a milestone in that game. Like, he might have had his 25,000th point. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it was. It was a long time ago. We're, you know, we're talking 30, 40 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, think about can. Think about, the, okay, there's this kid from Apple Creek, Ohio, from Manchester, New Hampshire, or from Burlington, Vermont, to Manchester, New Hampshire, to Cobo Hall in Detroit, doing Celtics basketball on Armed Forces Radio, just as a, you can throw that in, and, you know, making that announcement, reading that announcement, this game tonight is being broadcast on Armed Forces Radio around the world. You know, what? Uh, this, <laughs> yeah. This, can, this can't be possible, but it's. You just did it. You just did the game. And uh, that was, you can imagine, that was quite a thrill. But it was, if it wasn't the first week, but I think it was, it was when I first started there. And so, yeah, and I think that, I think Johnny Most, we, we, we got along, but we never got along. Nobody really ever got yeah. along with Johnny. Yeah, exactly. But I think he yep. was... I think he was threatened. I know he was threatened when Glenn Ordway was his partner because he always thought somebody was there to take his job. Yep. Well, nobody was going to take his job as long as Red was around. So at any rate, that's, that's, that was that. Yeah, that was a major, major opportunity. And, and you also did some football in New Hampshire with a gentleman whom you had in the studio one night, and he and I both did a show with you. I can't remember his name. Jack Thornton. That's it. 
That's it. How come I can remember it, Ken, and you can't? Because you've got a better memory than I have. I don't think that's true. <laughs> Jack was sightless and provided... How do I describe this? Well, I'll just say, tell you the way it color. was. Jack, Jack did an analysis, color analysis. I had a color man who's Dick Powers who just passed away last week, sadly. And uh, between Dick Powers who did the color analysis and Jack... Thornton, who was sightless, also, you know, filled in the blanks. And you know what? You're going to say, how did that happen? How's that possible? And all I can tell you is that Jack had the innate ability to listen, to listen to sounds, to listen to uh, voices, to to hear things that other people didn't hear or couldn't hear or chose not to hear. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, Jack was great. And I really didn't – I never – well, I didn't do many games without him. I'll say that. So, I, you know, a lot of people thought it was a gimmick that, you know, there's no way that Jack could understand what he was going on on the field. He can't see it. Well, he saw it. He saw it in, in many different ways that the rest of us that saw it didn't see it. I, that makes any sense at all. Mm -hmm. I know it makes sense to you. Yeah, yeah it does. It does. Uh, at that time... Uh, sports in Boston was not the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week um, uh, landscape that it is today. The only only sports you had were from 6 to 8 o'clock at night, and sportscasts that lasted longer than a minute uh, in the afternoon. I'll bet it must have made you have a great sense of pride to know that you guys were controlling the landscape of sports in Boston. Well, I think we were competitors, like everything we covered. I mean, we, the group that we had doing sports at Channel Four, the, the people out front on the anchor desk, and the people behind the scenes. Most importantly, the people behind the scenes were competitive. We did not like to lose. We did not want to get beaten on a story. We were very competitive, and we all. The, the blessing of that group was that we all basically thought alike. I could be sitting on the set, something might happen that I needed to talk about on the air, and I didn't have a script. Well, I, they could tell me in my ear what I needed to do, and uh, and I'd be able to do it and say it. We just all really kind of worked together, and that's one of the good fortunes of having people that really care about the product. I'm also thinking radio, however, um, two hours a night, and that was all that there was as far as sports. Uh, that's true. It was like the forerunner. You know, Eddie Andelman had his group, and Guy Manella had, who was, people who don't know Guy Manella don't understand how really terrific Guy was doing sports, calling all sports, and it was in the evening, yep. it was in the early evening. And it was great fodder for traveling at home. And Guy had a great sense of humor, uh, very sarcastic, <laughs> very smart guy, uh, and pretty much smarter than most of the people that called in. <laughs> and uh, th not a knock on the people that called in, but just a uh, Guy Manella compliment. And I always loved Guy Manella. I thought he was the best. I, I would have loved to have been him. And that's kind of one of the things that got me started. So I did a sports talk show in Manchester, 
similar. I mean, it was kind of on the opposite side of Guy Manila, but it was seriously had a New Hampshire feel to it. And um, but it was pretty much all Boston sports as well. It's just that Guy was there, and and I was in Manchester, but he was one of the guys. I loved Manila myself. I know um, you did. I uh, when I first came to Boston. I had a chance to meet the program, uh, the uh, a gentleman named Lamont Thompson, <laughs> who uh, worked as a PR for a BZ and also happened to be on the board of trustees of Graham Junior College, where I went to college. <laughs> and when I came to to BZ through Graham, he said to me, "Is there anybody you want to meet?" And I said, "Yeah, Guy Manila." And Guy couldn't have been nicer. He was. He's great. And still is. Uh, I, my wife and I saw Guy last summer. Really? Up in Maine. And he still sounds as good as he ever did. Um, and he's just just a wonderful human being. And I, I, I miss him. Is he still living in Nashua or, or in Hudson, New Hampshire or wherever? No, no. Is? He's somewhere in Maine. I don't oh, remember okay. the town. But there's a gentleman who should be in the Mass Broadcasters Hall of Fame. That's true. And, that, and so should Alan Miller, my producer. i got to figure out how to get these guys in. Got to nominate them. Well, I'm on the board. I suppose I could have something to say oh, about it. Oh, absolutely. They, they don't ask me. Why am I not Manila and why not Alan Miller? I got, okay, who, i got to go and deal with this. <laughs> I'm going to make that note right now. I'm going to I'm going to play this back for you in a year. No, I want to know. It would be a, <laughs> it would be absolutely Guy Manila and Alan Miller are two people I absolutely think should be in the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. One for the work he did on the air, and one for the work he did off the air. You think people, athletes, and broadcasters were more accessible back in those days? Well, athletes were. Um, they didn't. They thought that, well, how should I put this? It wasn't an invasion of privacy. They just thought it came with the territory, that they spoke to the media one-on-one -on -one when the media asked. Well, now you got to sit in front of a Dunkin' Donuts board <laughs> and and the sponsors, you know, get their money's worth by everybody reading the Dunkin' Donuts sign behind the interview. So it's, uh, yeah, they're not as accessible. Sometimes you just have to figure out how to go through the team to get to somebody. I don't know about you, but I still miss Don Cherry. <laughs> I absolutely love. How can you not miss him? The years that Cherry was coach Great. for the Boston Bruins. I I it's, grew up and he was. He, you know what? Uh, right, we didn't do enough with him. I'm just. It's funny you should mention that because anytime his name is brought up, I have the same gut feeling that I'm mad at myself. It's like Mark Fidrich. I don't think I did enough uh, with Fidrich. And I don't think I did enough with Don Cherry. Those are two gems that we. I just did not. I'm upset with myself for not <laughs> taking advantage of it, and uh, I didn't never wanted that to happen again. One of the reasons that we did did a TV show called Sports Legends is that I was going to Fidrich's wake in uh, Northborough, I believe it was, and he. I just decided I. I can't do this. I can't not have. An interview with Mark Fidrich or anyone after that, Eckersley or somebody. I can't not right. sit down with Dennis Eckersley or I can't not sit down with some of these more interesting people. And so that's how that show, Sports Legends, was born. It wasn't necessarily very popular, but it really is a library of maybe 50 or 60 
legends on tape that somebody 100 years from now can go back and take a look at. You did one show in particular. Uh-oh. I know what this is. And, and I loved it. And I envied you. I kept thinking to myself, man, I wish that was me. No, you don't. You didn't want to be. You, you, had, you had Ted Williams, yeah. Bobby Orr, yeah. Larry Bird. It's true. Tell us how. You tell didn't, us you how didn't want to be where I was. Oh, you want to bet? There's only one person that could have screwed up that show. And it, <laughs> it was me. Uh, we did an hour show in place of a regular half-hour sports final. Uh, we really, Ken, wanted to do a Larry Bird, Bobby Orr show because they were both stars of the winter sports. They were both the best at what they did in their in their games, and they were both revered uh, by the fans here in Boston. And so I asked Bobby Orr first if he'd be interested in doing it with Larry. He said, of course. And then I got a hold of Bird, and we said, you know, Orr's in. You want to sit down with us? On that Sunday night, we'll do it. Come on in. And he said, sure. And then uh, the week before, John Henry Williams, Ted's son, I assume you're going to ask me how this came together. You're, you're right. Uh, you're Ted's right. son came into our office, as he did frequently, because he was hitting on one of our interns. <laughs> and so she really deserves credit for the interview. Uh, he said, I see you're having uh, Orrin Bird together. Next week, you know, Dad's going to be in town next weekend. Do you want to have him come over and be on that show? I said, what? You know, <laughs> you're kidding, right? No, he wasn't kidding. He said, let's do it. I said, let's do it. So that's how that happened. A week before, uh, John Henry Williams brought in the, the Ted piece. And he, uh, John was a marketing genius in many ways, although he took advantage of his father in many ways. Mm -hmm. It was still his family, so he really basically had free license. He said, the only thing I'd ask for, uh, Bob, is that I get rights to all the pictures and video other than what's broadcast on Channel 4. I said, fine with me, man. I don't care. I just want to – my job was to do the show, not to, decide, not to control the video. But he took the still pictures and uh, sold them. With the three of them, you know, that it's yeah. a famous picture. He sold them for around five hundred dollars a piece, and uh, made a thousand of them. At least that's what he said, and uh, that that was that. But that's kind of how that happened. And then they came in. They all revered Ted. Ted has had the magnetic personality. Orr and Bird were both pretty shy. Uh, you'd think it was other otherwise two you know huge stars, but they were much more much more comfortable with talking about their own sports than they were talking about themselves. So Ted really assisted. He was kind of like a co-host for for that particular show. But that's how it all happened. And you know what, Kenny? I, I don't pay much attention to, about that show. I've never watched it. I know that's hard to believe. I just <laughs> I had no interest in watching it because I know I would be too self-critical about questions I should have asked and, and I mean, I can think of questions now I wish I would have asked, but uh, I didn't. Uh, that's the way it goes. You know, you only get one shot. You better be as prepared as you can possibly be. You know, there's an old saying, and people ask me, what about anybody that the, the man who got away? And I'll always remember Bill Russell. Yeah, well. We had him booked for a book of his, and the last minute he canceled. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. Yeah, well, you know what? 
he was an interesting, and still is, um, although his health is failing, as is all of ours. But his, we did not ask him on that show because at that particular time, he was not exactly user-friendly in Boston. And uh, I think it was our discretion to, to, although he would have been, clearly, if you wanted to get the four premier, you know, Hall of Fame, uh, Mount, whatever, uh, athletes, Russell would have been included. So he wasn't. But for that reason, he just wasn't user-friendly, and we did not make the effort to get him. Today, different. Today, I keep thinking, well, who would we have today? <laughs> I'd have Brady on. I'd have Orr back on. I'd have Bird on. I'd certainly have Ted on. Impossible. Um, and I would certainly, I would have Russell. Russell would be, you know, like numero uno. But he should have been on if we were going to do the pantheon of, of Boston sports legends because he was one of them, perhaps the most important one. Yep. I talked on the radio this morning, Ken, to a group in in uh, Lowell, and we talked about best, greatest basketball player ever. We're talking about Lebr LeBron James, who I have to say, how can you not say he's one of the greatest yeah. players ever? How Scored can you 51 not? 51 points last how night. How can you not put him there because he's unattractive, because he's, and most people don't like him because of his body language, etc. The guy's the greatest player that ever lived. And I said, you know, you know, Russell's Russell could make claim to that with all the championships that he won and all the seventh games that he never lost, you know, all all of the records. So uh, that's that's neither here nor there. But he, that's what we well, what Bill Russell was all about. I I like to think that in the years that we were at WBZ and the sports that we carried, I think we had the best broadcasters in their respective professions of any city that carries sports. Hard to disagree with that. I mean, talking about Gil Santos yep. doing football. Yep. Bob Wilson. Bob Wilson was the greatest. Doing the Bruins. I don't think anybody could broadcast hockey no, like, like he, Bob. He had the voice. He had the talent. He had the passion. And uh, there's no question about that. Uh, Johnny Most, I had, the, I had really great experience of doing color for Most and Wilson on their home games for two years. Whether BZ was trying to save money, I don't know. <laughs> Hard to believe that they would actually try to do that. I know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> what am I thinking? So that was a, a great two years that nobody can remember but me. <laughs> but Wilson, yeah, to work with those guys, absolutely great. They they honored the Bruins from 77, 78 uh, a few weeks ago at the Boston Garden. And they called them the Lunch Pail Gang because they had 20 guys who scored at least 50 goals. <laughs> that's, that's amazing when you look back at that. No, it is. You know, they, they were the battling Bruins. They were just the, they were fighters. They were tough. And uh, they were a, a wild bunch. And they were one of the original six. They had yep. all the, all the uh, trappings of... And that's why I think it's hard to s say what sport's the most popular one in Boston. I think when the Bruins are in the playoffs, by far the passion runs deeper than any other any other team 
in in the playoffs. I think it runs deeper than the Celtics were in the playoffs. I think the passion. I'm just talking about the passion. Right. I'm talking about the the, the heartache and the excitement. There's nothing that really eclipses uh, hockey fans like that. Some of those games against Montreal. I mean, really, come on. This was, and they were. We're talking about these characters. We're talking about Don Cherry. We're talking about Terry O'Reilly. Uh, you know, God rest his son Evan, and also uh, Bobby Schmatz. Schmatzy, and uh, you know, it was Winsink, John Winsink, yep. John Greg Bork, Stan Jonathan. Yep. Um, on and on. Esposito, yep. Hodge. Let's. Let's go right down the list. <laughs> yeah. Don Ory, you know. I, oh, yeah. Eddie Westfall, one of my all-time favorites, Eddie Westfall. Yeah. Anyway, so much for that. All right. Um, two things that I will always take to my grave as far as remembrances of calling all sports. One was the night we had Roger Doucette, I love saying <laughs> that name, from Montreal. Yeah. And Rene Rancor. We did, didn't we? From here. Together on the phone. We did. Singing the national anthems of both countries. We did have them, didn't we? We certainly did, and I'll never forget it. That's a home run. I I think that, think back to that show, first of all, think, did we, do, did we really do that? Yeah, we did it all right. We did it, and I'm just thinking about the thought processes. We took a lot of, I didn't say we took chances, but we tried to do a lot of things that were different. And having both of those guys on was different. You've seen them both side by side or one after the other, but both on together, commenting on each other, different. And that was our goal, is to be entertaining and to be different. And the other one I'll remember is after Martin and Woods worked radio in Boston for five years, which were probably the best five years of two guys doing play-by-play in baseball in Boston, having them together as well on the telephone after the start of the, I'm guessing, 79 season. And I agree that, with you on the, I agree with you on Martin and Woods. Um, although they've had some great announcers between Orsillo, I think Dave O'Brien is a, just a top-notch yep. national broadcaster. Excellent, yep. And yep. Uh, they've had... You know, some of my, some of them, some of their color analysts have not been my favorites, but it's not their fault. The, the, the uh, analysts are put there by other people. So <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but what other what other memories do you have that I don't maybe remember? Well, I remember Buckner. I remember him walking off the field when I, when I did an interview with him, and wondering if uh, in that 1986 playoffs. You know when when the big guys were going to hit instead of Marty Barrett and Rick Burleson and the guys that were driving in runs and he got mad at me. I remember you know him walking off the interview. That was that was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> so I remember I usually remember the stuff that didn't work as opposed to the stuff that that did. So yeah, Billy Martin did that to me too. So don't feel bad. No, no, but it happens it, to everybody. It does. It does. But it it was. But then I also remember this with Buckner, and this was this was a documented um, story. Nineteen days before, and I'm not talking 18 or 20. I'm saying 19 because we counted. 
19 days before the ball went through his legs, he told our uh, weekend sports anchor, Don Shane, that when asked about what's the worst thing that could happen, and he was said, well, the worst thing that could happen to him would probably be a ball that uh, I couldn't play that maybe got past me that cost us the World Series. And, uh, you know, 19 days later, it happened. Didn't cost them the World Series because that was Game Six. Game but Six, it, right? In a way, it did cost them the World Series because they had Game Six won, and uh, that's that. Who did you replace on BZTV? Len, uh, no, it was it was this. This is the way it went. It was Dick Stockton, ah, then Dick. Len Berman, yep, Roger Twibell. Oh gosh, and then me. That was the that was the way the uh, roster went. Okay. And Stockton is still doing games. Uh, Berman probably still somewhere, and uh, Roger probably still somewhere. But I like Dick very much. He Dick, used to do sports commentaries at night. I used to be in the studio, and he would always come in to tape them. And I always went in the studio and with him when he did them because I was so impressed with him. He's a, that's good. I mean, these are these are guys who are like these are legends, you know that were. We're here when the world was a different place. Certainly the television world was a different place. Yes, the radio was too. Yes. Now, again, as a fan, when something that you may have heard of called Deflate Gate got started, both sports stations in Boston, national sports shows, this was all they talked about, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Did you listen to any of that and get bored like I did and say, I, I can't stand this? No, I, I, I tried to figure out how we would cover it, if we would cover it, and if it would be. It's like, so what? You know, what's the big deal? You know, is it, you think they're cheating? You think they, were, they did what they did within the rules? You think it made them a better player? You think it made it Brady a better player? Uh, I don't know. I just thought... So much was made of nothing. Even if, even if they did what everybody said they did, so what? You know, it was. No, you're right, Ken. It was. It was way, too, way over the top. Way over the top. It's, just, it's the same thing with the videotape and the Jets. Uh, oh, Spygate. Spygate. Ridiculous. Yep. Totally ridiculous argument. Like that really made a difference. <laughs> like the taping, the signals. Defensive signals on the sideline really made a difference. You know, sorry, but it's stupidity, overkill. All right. Let's, if we can, quickly, because there are other things that I want to try and get to, let's do an assessment of the major teams. Let's talk about Bill Belichick not playing Malcolm Butler in the <laughs> Super Bowl. His second person asked me that question this morning. And, Again, still. And... Are you surprised that Belichick is still there? I'm yes, but it's at, at his own desire. I'm surprised. I don't think he'd ever be fired, but I think it's because he's decided to stay there. That's why I'm what I'm surprised at that he's still there uh, be, by by his own uh, volition. The other stuff was uh, what was the other stuff that you were. Uh, I would be curious as to your thoughts. Oh, Malcolm Butler. Yeah, Malcolm Butler. Uh, you yeah. know what? I've talked to former players. I've talked to present-day players, media, and everybody. 
He must have done something. He must have been sick, which he was. Mm-hmm. Must have missed a flight, which he might have. Blah, blah, blah. So it's like Belichick had his reasons. There's no reason in the world Belichick wouldn't have played him if he thought that he could step up and do the job. There's no reason in the world. Uh, should he have shared it with his team, perhaps? Uh, should he share it with the public? I think he gave the message to the public that he wasn't playing them, and that's all you needed to know. Does he have an obligation to share it to the public? Uh, yeah, I think so, but he shared as much as he wanted to, and that's that. All right, let's talk about the Bruins. The day that they had the Super Bowl parade after that tremendous come-from-behind victory that Tom Brady uh, engineered over the Atlanta Falcons, the Bruins, same day, same time, decided to dismiss their coach who had brought them a Stanley Cup. I realize you can't live on what you did seven or eight years ago, but should they have done it at a no, different time? No, it was stupid. It was really ridiculous. It's such a Jeremy Jacobs thing. I'm not a big fan of Jeremy Jacobs, by the way. And when <laughs> really? he says, all you need to know when now that the Supreme Court has legalized professional gambling, uh, in our country, all you need to know is how much Jeremy Jacobs wanted that to happen because all it meant is more money for him. I seriously uh, have very little use for him and the Jacobs family and owning the Bruins, and that's that goes way back. Uh, and I don't see myself changing that position at all. And for him to come out as one of the owners in sports saying, hey, this is a good thing. We should be legalizing professional gambling because uh, we all stand to make some more money. That's him. That's who he is. None of these guys uh, really cared about the integrity of their sports. I mean, look at basketball, Ken. Why do you think it's so easy to shave points in basketball? <laughs> because it is. Yeah. It just is easy to do it. And why has it been done in the past? Because it's easy. And will it be done in the future? Of course. And... I don't know if you had a chance to take in the first game of the Western playoffs last night. No, I did not. When the officials stopped a charging, reviewed a charging call and made it a blocking call in terms of the last, you know, 15 or 20 seconds of that game against LeBron James and Kevin Durant. It was obscene that if officials could control the game that way. But anyway, that's, that's beside the point. Celtics one or two players away from an NBA championship. Uh, let's say they're one or two players away from being a better team and leave it at that because I'm not sure they could beat the, the uh, Steph Currys and Kevin Durant's because hasn't the league really turned into a three-point league with oh, yeah. a dunk now and then? You miss your three-pointers, well, you better learn how to dunk it. It's one or the other. There's very little, very little basketball uh, being played if, you want to judge basketball, by the way, was during the Bird Russell and I'm sorry, Bird Parish and McHale era. You know, when you had five guys racing up the court in a fast break and you had Bird leading the charge and not knowing where he's going to pass the ball or take it in himself, it just doesn't happen anymore. Fast breaks are accidents, they're not things wait, nobody, you know, wait, doesn't wait for it to happen. All right, Red Sox. Alex Cora 
I John, think he's going to be great. John Farrell. Um, Forget it, Farrell. Farrell's uh, history and— uh, Yeah, I know he's history, but I, was, I wanted you to compare— the two guys. Okay, Alex Cora is a much more acts, acts much more human. Uh, Farrell was much more of a machine, at least in terms of demeanor. And I think Cora is the real deal. For him to go in and say, "I need to get rid of Hanley Ramirez," you don't hear, you didn't hear much hue and cry from the players, did you? About, oh, Hanley, you know they really crippled us for down the stretch. Hanley is no longer here. Poor Hanley. You know, he's only going to make $100 million, but he's not going to play. Poor Hanley. We'll have to get him a ring if we win this thing. We'll vote him a ring anyway. I didn't hear a lot of that. I thought Hanley Ramirez dogged it. I thought he was, I think his body language was unacceptable and was unacceptable uh, to Cora and his concept of team because I think he had a lot of, he has a lot of great young players that are playing together, that are very uh, influenced fairly easily. And Hanley Ramirez was not the number one, well, was the number one bad influence on that team. And I think he loafed, and I think that uh, Cora knew it, and I think it cost him a lot of money, but he was willing to to ask if they could make a move on Cora, because, or make a move on Hanley, because everybody, I think, in the front office, if I could see it, they can see it. That's that was my easily uh, arrived at decision. If I could see that he was loafing around first base and after he got to second, slowed it down, picked up the speed, went to third, got thrown out of third. It was a play a couple of weeks ago. I said, "That's it. They 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 got to see what I'm seeing." And they, they, so for them to do that, it did not surprise me. Red Sox have made some mistakes, I guess, as, of course. as other ball clubs have. Of course. I, I don't think we should have lost John Lester. Uh, I agree. I'm, Why can't we get players like that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about people like Mookie Betts. Uh, what are you worried about? I'm worried about that they might lose him. Because? Because he'll want more money than they'll want to pay. Well, I don't know. He, he might be right. Andrew Benatende, same thing. No, I think right now these guys are putting people in the ballpark, right? You'd pay to see Mookie Betts play. Oh, you he's, bet I would. He's to that. He's really to that plateau, and I think that's what happens now. These you'd pay to see this team play because of how interesting they are, and how much. I mean, Bogarts at short, the, the hitting tear that he's been on. I mean, Bradley's starting to hit in center field. I mean, if he becomes a legitimate hitter, put together with his center field prowess, you know, here's a perennial all star, Betts. Yep. Willie Mays, he's being compared to. Benintendi, you know, not the power, but the acumen. Uh, they're probably weakest at catcher. I mean, if you had to figure out where the Red Sox really need help, I'm not sure the Vasquez or Sandy Leone are the answers. But on the other hand, hey, they've won more games than anybody else, so let's cut them a little <laughs> slack. Yeah. All right. On a serious note, I know what it's like to be let go. I've had it happen to me twice with the same radio station. Um, I remember our last Calling All Sports radio broadcast with Upton Bell and how miserable I felt because they were doing something that I disagreed with. I'm sure you felt that way, but I don't really know the full story of BZTV. Um, 
You are facing disability issues now, which I, if it's okay to discuss that for a little while, but were you at that time that you were let go, were you having problems then? And if not, tell us the story of, of how they ended your reign and how long you were there. I don't even remember. I was, I remember. I was having problems there because I remember them wanting me to finish. Uh, it was early in the month of May in, in 2008, and they wanted me to finish May on the air. Uh, it was a ratings book, and they wanted me to finish May on the air. And uh, I said, no, I got to go in for an operation next week. So I was having problems, and I did have an operation scheduled, uh, back surgery scheduled for the following week. So um, it was, like I said, 2008. This was a CBS decision in New York. Uh, a number of people, when I say a number, I would say maybe 10 people in the country at CBS stations. A few here, Scott Wally, Joyce Kilhaywick, myself, contract players um, were let go at the end of their contracts because, frankly, they were making more money than CBS wanted to pay those positions. And so, you know, I, that was, I'd have, I'd have come back and said, well, you know, I'd take less money. I'll do whatever it takes. I wasn't anxious to leave. I did not want to leave. In fact, it, it, it did a lot. It didn't do many positive things for me, I'll have to say that. It, it changed my life in a lot of ways, and not all for the better. So am I, do I am holding any grudges? Only to a few people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, that's, it's their... It was their business. They were, they were running it. Um, and um, so what, I don't know what else to say. It was a, it was a serious a function of the market, a function of, of the, the financial situation in the country when it was a depression. And again, go back to 2008 and find out, you know, card manufacturers were ready to pack it in. It was, it was not a happy time for a lot of people. And it was not a happy time for, okay, those of us who made a pretty good salary doing a job everybody loved, nobody's going to feel sorry for us. But it just, it happened. We still were uh, human beings. We still had to deal with whatever that that brought. But that's that's pretty much it, Ken. And, then, and it happened to a lot of, like I say, I think maybe 10 or so across the country that were CBS contract players that you know, got the ax. Did you ever get any other offers? I say that because I talked to Gary LaPierre earlier in the week, and uh, he said, I, I, I asked him, I said, you know, I, I remember Streeter Stewart at WBZ, and Streeter told me he always got offers from CBS and other places in New York, and he just didn't want to leave WBZ. And Gary said the same thing. He had an offer to go to Detroit, double his salary, and somebody said to him, you've got a reputation here in Boston. You'd have to start all over again. Were you offered anything else while you were at BZ? Yes, I was. I was offered, uh, uh, you know Jim Nance? Perhaps sure. you've heard of Jim Nance? Of course. Well, he took the job that I turned down. So you could still be with CBS. I could be. I was pretty confident that uh, 
that was a mistake on my part because I don't think I would have enjoyed working in New York or it wasn't that important to be recognized in Cleveland uh, walking through the airport, which I, you know, kind of felt an, uh, a national position would have basically, it's one of the big advantages being recognized in an airport in Cleveland. I didn't think it was worth it. I had kids in New Hampshire, uh, which more importantly was one of the reasons I didn't go. And uh, for the same reason that LaPierre didn't leave, there was no point in me leaving Boston. I mean, I had, you know, everything that I would have wanted in terms of, uh, uh, you know, job, family, whatever. I loved it here. All right. You have a disability issue. I do. Uh, Tell us about it. Well, I don't know what, you know, other than to say it was spinal stenosis and uh, it's not getting necessarily worse, but it's not getting better either. And so um, I just got to deal with it. You know, I'm on crutches. I can't walk without crutches. I, you know, I used to be a runner. Had a chance. I did run the marathon and back in 1978 and I have a great picture of myself and Dave Maynard embracing at the finish line. And... Uh, so a lot of those activities I had have had to just curtail. I am able to play golf. I have to use a special, a handicapped excessive uh, golf cart, but that's come in very well. And I've had a, you know chance to play quite a bit at Granite Links because they do have a handicapped cart there, and it's a great uh, course. And I, you know it's my favorite place. I spend most of my summers down there. So anyway, Ken, that's kind of the way it is. I don't. I'd like to explain more about. Go ahead. The Go spinal ahead. stenosis, but I'm just telling you, it's like it's one of those things where it's a condition. It's not a disease. It's a big, you know, I'm not taking medication for it. Um, I'm not taking opioids, uh, opiates for it. You're I'm a marijuana not, supporter. I am. Uh, legal uh, medical marijuana, I am a supporter, although I should do more. I'm, I'm a cautious medical marijuana supporter. Maybe I'm just a little too conservative. I need to perhaps do a little more to make me feel a little better, but I'm just trying to be trying to be careful. Are you doing any air work at all? Uh, yeah. I'm just trying to think of where. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm just doing some things, like in Lowell, mm -hmm. and um, I, last year I did Worcester Bravehearts baseball. Oh no, um, kidding! Yeah, it was pretty cool. And you're and you're working for the Red Sox also, is that right? I am working for the Red Sox. What Thanks you, for reminding me. What do you do? Well, besides help Alex Cora make out his lineup card, right? I have a chance to do the public address announcing uh, from time to time, which I really enjoy. It's that is like going back to being a kid again. Ah, uh, you know, doing the PA is. Yeah, it's it's a kid's job, and I love doing it. The other thing I. Dick Flavin and I are doing something. I don't know if you're familiar with the Muppets. Yes. But they had the two old guys in the balcony. Uh, they were Waldorf and uh, Statler. That's what their names, mm -hmm. the two old guys. And they have Flavin and I positioned as Waldorf and Statler <laughs> doing a thing back and forth, but they haven't aired it yet. We did one show, and we're apparently going to do some more. So we'll have to see what happens there. 
Carl Bean was a very good friend of mine. He was great, you know, sad, and sad, sad. He, uh, he always talked about someday he was going to bring me over to Fenway Park and let me get on the PA system <laughs> when there was nobody in the park, and we never did it because I would have I would have loved a job like that. I used to admire people like him. Yeah, and, you would love. You would be great at and, that. And Bob Shepard out of Yankee Stadium. You would be great at that. I would have loved to have done it. Um, you have, have to. I might have to try to make that happen, Ken. I, you know, I'm trying to think. Now that my mind is turning, how would I get you to deliver the starting lineups as part of the pregame script? Are the starting lineups? Yep. Uh, not the whole starting lineups. And I want. I could say. And now to deliver the starting lineups is, uh, today is Ken Meyer. So you just give me a great idea. <laughs> See, this is what I'm saying. If you take, you have to be able to take ideas and uh, and run with them. All right. Tell me about your, your children, Bob. What are they up to? What are they doing? Well, I have a son who's a doctor in Vermont. He's a cardiologist. He's an electrophysicist. In other words, he does ablations and uh pacemakers, stints, and so he lives and works out of Burlington on the Fletcher Allen Hospital, and uh, he's really you know, successful, and I'm extremely proud of him. Uh, my oldest daughter is a teacher at a disadvantaged school, high school in White Salmon, Washington. She's a granola cruncher. She'll take four or five trips this summer before she goes back to school, just taking trips and uh, she's been amazing. She's biked around New Zealand. She's been up. And then I have a 23-year-old who is in New York looking for stardom on the stage. So uh, they're out there. They're out there trying to do whatever they're doing. Well, I got to tell you, Bob, uh, on a personal level, I can't thank you enough for coming in here and sitting down uh, to do this. Uh, you've always been very nice and respectful to me, and I will remember that for the rest of my life. And uh, well, you know, that's sweet. That's nice of you to say that. It means a lot. It, although, don't get too carried away. I, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I appreciate your taking the time to come in here, and uh, I hope this is not the last time that you and I get to sit. No, down. this is it, and I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, th thanks an awful right, lot no, Kenny, for coming thanks, in here. Thank you for the invitation and for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I'm sure our audience enjoyed it. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.